Well, good morning, everyone. So good to be here to bring the word to you. I, I hope you've been um, enjoying the, this series on Ephesians. It, um, as I was preparing this, it occurred to me that really the book of Ephesians is like is like the book of Romans and 1 Corinthians all condensed into just a few pages. Uh, it, there's pretty much all the same teaching in there, but it's but it's much more concise and um, e- easily consumed, I guess you would say. It's just such a, a, a good, concise exposition of the Christian faith and not only... Now I've completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's such a good concise exposition of, uh, of the gospel but no, not just of, um, of why we're saved and how we're saved but, but then how should we live and uh, we're coming to that in the, in the next few weeks because chapter, the end of chapter 3 is kind of the, the turning point in the book of Ephesians where, where it changes from being uh, why and how we're saved into, uh, uh, into then given that we are saved by this great and merciful act how should we then live? But he, Paul starts off here um, as, if, as if he's about to break into prayer again like he did in chapter 1. He says here, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of, of Christ Jesus for your sake. Uh, but then he stops. You'll notice in, the, in your text there that there's, there's a, you know, what do you call that thing? A line. A hyphen. That's the one. Uh, because he, so he, he decides... So it's like he thinks, well, actually, uh, no, I need to stop here. Um, that the, the, for this reason is because of all that he said, all this uh, stuff that, that John's been preaching to us the last few weeks about God's grace in bringing these Ephesian citizens who were, who were dead in their trespasses and sins, completely lost, without hope in the world, and he's brought them back to life. Well, no, actually, not back to life. He's brought them to life. They, they never were alive. They, they were like a, a dead body, which might have looked all right. I was actually reading in Spurgeon's um, daily thing this morning about, he said a dead body can be dressed up in a suit and made to look really actually quite presentable, but only God can bring it back to life. And, uh, and that's what's happened to these, these Ephesians. These Gentile sinners who were beneath contempt as far as the Jew- Jewish church was concerned, they've become part of Israel, part of God's chosen people, no less. You know, part of the, the true vine. And, uh, and so Paul starts off as if he's about to, to break in, into prayer again. And he actually, if you look down in verse 14 there, that's where he, he, he kind of resumes it again with the same words. Um, but then he, he sort of checks himself. And it seems like he's thought, well, actually, uh, perhaps I need to explain to these people why I have the authority to tell them this stuff or even to pray for them. You know, who am I to be telling God's people about God? And so he leaves off his prayer for a while to, to remind them of his qualifications to preach to them and to, to pray for them. You know, in the early years of the church, the, the apostles were were certainly held in the, in the highest regard that, because they were a direct link with Jesus. They, they walked and talked with him. They saw what he did. They heard his teaching. 
Uh, they saw the great miracles that he did. They saw him die on the cross. And most importantly, they saw him come to life again. And so they were, while they were still alive, they were a, a direct link with the person him, of Jesus himself. It's a bit like the, the men who fought in World War II. You know, all of them now are in their late 90s or, or more. And in a few years' time, there'll be none left. And we'll have no direct contact, no, no first-hand account of what it was like to, to be involved in that great conflict. Uh, you know, we'll still be able to talk to their children and grandchildren and get a second-hand account, but it's not the same thing. Of course, we, we have their books, and uh, the Second World War has produced many, many great books of uh, personal uh, memories of, of, of fighting in, that, in the war, unlike the First World War, where there was hardly any. Uh, and so we, those books, in a way, are a, are a direct contact, and so, and so it is with, with the Apostles. We have these letters in the New Testament. Um, they are a, a direct, unchanging link with the, the, the apostles themselves. We, uh, uh, of course, uh, of course, that you know, that is why God has arranged for the letters of the apostles. Remember, there was no printing in those days, so any copies had to be made by hand. But God has miraculously preserved these letters of Paul and Peter and John uh, so that we, we, we have this direct access still, unchanging and readily available, this direct access with the apostles. You know, just as an aside, if you, uh, you'll, you'll probably come, as a Christian, you'll probably come across people who, who will argue with you that the Gospels are unreliable because we have no idea when they were written. Uh, you know, we, we have no copy, complete copies of the Gospels uh, within, certainly none in the first century. The, there may be the odd uh, one in the, in, the, in the late second century. And so sceptics will argue that, well, you know, if we haven't got any copies further back than that, well, they probably are not a reliable witness of, of, uh, of what Jesus, who Jesus was and whether he even lived at all. But the answer to that is, well, look at Paul's letters. No one doubts that they were, were, were written in the first century, certainly before 70 AD. So they were all written within 20, 30 years of, of Jesus' life and, and the other le the letters of Peter and, and John as well. Uh, and they contain all the same thing. They confirm all the important things of the Gospels. So you know, the, the argument that, uh, that we don't have a first century copy of the Gospels is, is just uh, irrelevant. We have, we have these letters from the apostles themselves and they confirm everything that the Gospels say. Now, of course, uh, Paul was not one of the twelve. Um, <coughs> we don't know whether he ever even saw Jesus um, when he walked the earth, uh, <coughs> not before his death anyway, but we do know that we saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead uh, and no one in the early church seemed to doubt that. I mean, how, how could they doubt it when this man who went around murderously arresting the early Christians, putting them in jail and hoping that they would be sentenced to death, and, th and then suddenly he does this complete about-face, turns right around and becomes the, the greatest preacher of the gospel that ever lived. You know, how, how could that happen? 
unless he had really seen the, the risen Lord Jesus. And the fact that the, uh, the church kept more of Paul's uh, letters than anybody else and that they gave them the prime spot in the, after the Gospels and Acts in, new, in the New Testament, it shows the high regard that Paul was held in the, in the early church. Um, but at this early time, though, when before the, the New Testament had been assembled, uh, Paul probably felt that he needed to tell them where his authority was coming from. So in verse 1, he reminds them that he is a, he is a prisoner for Christ on their behalf. Now, how is it on their behalf? Well, you'll remember that when Paul was arrested, uh, like he's writing from jail here, in, uh, probably jail in Rome, uh, to, when he was arrested, it was in Jerusalem. And the reason was that he'd gone to the temple and the Jews that were there, some Jews from Asia, recognised him and, uh, and, they, uh, uh, and they said, this man, this is the man who's been upending our religion and causing trouble all throughout Asia. And what they meant was, was, was that, he, that Paul had been converting Gentiles and telling them about God. Well, you know, we, you can't do that. That's, that these, this Gentile riffraff, with, they don't belong here. And, and so that's why he, so, so Paul was a prisoner on their behalf, on their account. And God's grace was given to Paul uh, for them. Because in, in Damascus, when after Paul had had his experience of seeing the Lord Jesus on the road, uh, when uh, Ananias came, uh, God sent Ananias to pray for him, he told, God told Ananias that Paul is his chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And, and now God has uh, showed Paul what had been previously unknown. Uh, he uses the, the word mystery there four times just in this uh, passage that we read today. Uh, I mean, look, it, was, it was hinted at a lot of times in the Old Testament. You can, you can certainly, with, with the benefit of hindsight that we have, you can see it in the Old Testament, this mystery. But it remained a mystery until the time of, uh, of the apostles. The apostles who, who had seen, uh, you know, they'd seen Jesus talking with a Samaritan woman who, you know, is almost a Gentile, uh, and they'd, they'd seen him uh, healing a Syrophoenician woman. Um, you, you know, she's definitely a Gentile, but it didn't seem to occur to the apostles that, that salvation might be for anyone except the Jews. Uh, and even when God called Peter to go to Cornelius's house, uh, it, it didn't seem to cause a big outbreak of evangelism to the Gentiles among the apostles. It was Paul who Jesus uh, specifically sent to convert the Gentiles. And so the mystery that the Gentiles are to be included in those being saved has now been revealed. Uh, you can see it there in verse, uh, verse 6. Uh, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, you know, they're... they're the Gentiles, that's us, are right in there. We're not like, like some sort of lean-to that's you know, been roughly tacked onto the side of the house of God. We're, we're there. We're, we're in it. We're the main bit. And it was a complete mystery to the Jews. You know, they would think, well, why on earth would um, God include that unclean riffraff 
for in his chosen people. But who can fathom the mind of God, his unmeasurable grace and mercy uh, in bringing the gospel to us, to the Gentiles? And Paul is his chosen instrument to bring us the good news. Even though Paul considers that he is the least of all the, all the saints because he persecuted the church. Now, now verse, uh, verse 10, I think, is an interesting, interesting verse. If we just, um, if we, we see here that, that he says that God's intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose. So God has saved this bunch of people entirely by his grace and he's taken all sorts of sinners, thieves, adulterers, murderers, um, gossipers, slanderers, blasphemers, and he's transformed them through the blood of Jesus. And now, it's, it seems to me that what this verse is saying is that God is gathering all the hosts of heaven together, which means all the angels and, and, and all the demons and Satan even, and he's pointing it at the church at us and saying look what I've done look what I've done through my son I've changed these these dead sinners into what you see now look at the righteousness that they're wearing mind you I think it therefore must be embarrassing for the Lord Jesus when we don't live as if we have actually been changed. I mean, surely Satan accuses us day and night, saying, well, well, look at look at Phil Cook. He says he's saved by your grace, but look at him. And there's, you know, there's some truth in that. We are still imperfect. But I do not lose heart, because I know that Jesus died for me. And, and his sacrifice was more than enough to cover all of my sins and all of your sins. But still, I try not to embarrass him. And Paul then goes on to say we have boldness and we can come to him with confidence, not because we, not because we think we're better than anyone else or that we think we're good and, and we deserve it, we have boldness, we have confidence because Jesus died for us. Now in verse 14, Paul returns to his prayer where he's praying for the church like he did in chapter 1. You know, when I read Paul's prayers, in fact, when, even when I read his letters, I find it really helpful if I think of them as being written directly to us, you know, to gospel church here, as if Paul's writing, it's not the letter to the Ephesians, it's the letter to the gospel church at Middleton. It kind of helps me to, to, to focus it somehow. So let's, let's just have a bit of a closer look at this prayer. He prays, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's verse 16 and 17. So 
So why do we need God's strength? What, what's Paul saying that we need God's strength for? So that Christ may live in us. You know, it seems to me that should be the other way around. Surely he means, well, Christ has come to live in you and so therefore you're strengthened. But no, no, he's saying, he's praying for us to have God's strength so that Christ may live in us. We need his strength. We need the help of the Holy Spirit, I think, because surely um, we would be consumed, killed, if we came that close to God, to God the Son, of having him live in us. You know, like Isaiah, when he, he, saw, he saw the King, he saw the Lord, and he said, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. He thought he was going to die. So for that, for one reason, that, that one reason we need uh, God's strength in us, just so that we can, you know, a terrible sinner like we used to be, just, there's no way that we could stand having Jesus live in us. But more than that, how can we ever know the breadth and le- length and depth and height of Christ's love given to us on the cross? unless he shows it to us by a personal revelation. Uh, you know, Paul says that it surpasses knowledge and, and Rick referred to this. How, you know, how, how can this be that we, that we know something that surpasses knowledge? Well, it's because God reveals it to us. That's how we know. And so Christ living in us reveals that love. We certainly can't work it out by ourselves. God himself must show us I mean we, we can look a lot like you know good and proper Christians to others on the outside but if, but if we have not Christ's love you know if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal if I have the gift of prophecy if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love I'm nothing if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. So without Christ's love living in us, we are precisely nothing. Well, what does it mean to have uh, Jesus living in us? Well, uh, you know, John referred earlier on to, uh, to our uh, at, at gospel community that we only had a small group turn up. Well, actually, it was only Shelley and me. And, uh, but we had a lovely time discussing this reading. And John was telling us about his lecturer at Bible College who, who said about when Jesus... He, he said something like, when Jesus come to live, live in us, he likes to rearrange the furniture. He, he's not going to let us go on the way we were. Things are going to change. Knowing Jesus changes us. We need his power and strength. And, and look, how, look how he finishes this prayer. I, I really, this bit, this bit sort of really uh, it messes with my head. <laughs> he, sa- he prays that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Um, Paul prayed for, 
prayed this for the church at Ephesus. Uh, you know, let's earnestly pray that for, for gospel church. Do you think it's too much to ask to be filled with all the fullness of God? It seems to me it is. But, you know, I, I mean, I don't even know exactly what that means, but I want it. But look at verse 20. He is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the, the power that is at work um, that is at work within us. It seems to me this blessing that Paul finishes off with can be applied to lots of things besides just that, just besides just having all the fullness of God. Uh, you know, God can do far more abundantly than anything we can ask or imagine. That's got a lot of applications. What are you praying for? The salvation for a family friend? He's able to do more than we think. To build this church, look around us, the fields are white for the harvest. And he can do far more abundantly than anything we can ask or imagine. Are you worried about your health or your, or your family or someone, someone you love? Well, he can strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. And do you think that heaven might be, you know, it goes on forever. Do you think you might run out of things to do? Do you think it might be a bit, a bit dull or something? Uh, you know, I think the trouble is that, that when we try to think of heaven, we think, oh, yeah, it'll be, it'll be just all the good things that, that we have here, only a bit better, you know, and they'll, they'll go on a bit longer. But kind of that, that just sounds like it, you're going to run out of things to do and it might be a bit dull. But that's when I rem I'm reminded of this verse. God can do far more than anything we can ask or imagine. And in that way, I think it's a bit pointless trying to think about heaven too much because we can't, we can't imagine it. We can't imagine the, the joy and the, the love, absolute loveliness of what we are going to. We just need to, to trust God that it will be as he has promised. So that's... Uh, that's about all I've got to, to say about this, so uh, let's just uh, pray and then we'll, uh, we'll move into a time of communion. Let's pray. Lord, look on your church with mercy and we pray that from your overflowing riches of glory you will strengthen us with power by your spirit in our inner being. Give us faith, dear Father, faith that, that Jesus is living in our hearts. Let his love control all that we do so that we can understand and know the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses all worldly knowledge. Father, we bear your name. Fill us with all your fullness. And to you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.